Wow. Look at that. I like how he starts with wow. Wow. We are in Tech for Evil headquarters, really, aren't we? Do you like the new studio setup, Manal? I love it. Oh, my God. Do you like the new mics? It's... We are profesh now. We are profesh. I'm trying to just turn off my phone just one second. Yes. I always put my phone offline most of the time, you know, from the time I have my dinner, it's offline, until the next day. Practicing a little bit of digital detox yourself there, Manal. No, flight mode. Ah, uh, flight mode. Where okay. would we be without We can mode? start now. Yalla. 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 Yalla, yalla, habibi. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. A prison for your mind. Salam, everyone. We are officially having our own studio. We are. In the residence of Reinhard Sosen. Tech for Evil headquarters, as I'm calling it now. What do you call these ones? The books? Oh, the acoustic panels. Acoustic panels. And we have new... New mics. New mics. They've got that new car smell. We're happy to do that for our part three of the mini series Captology. And I'm glad to announce that we have a guest today on this episode. We do. But he decided to sleep when we started recording. He's snoring. He's a very sleepy guest. <laughs> it's my puppy, Leon, Leonardo. Leonardo, welcome. He's handful, as my son calls him. He's a handsome handful, though, Mia. <laughs> He's, he's beautiful. He's been glorious all day. He's been running around. And chewing everything. Making friends out in the park. Let's hope he stays asleep for yeah. the recording. If oh, you do hear some snoring, uh, that's not me. It's not Manal. It's probably Leo. It's good that you can't smell. We change his food. Yeah, that's fantastic. Oh, boy. It's a good thing microphones don't record the smell in the room. Leo, you've got issues, buddy. So today is part three of our mini-series yeah. on Captology. We've been having an amazing time doing this mini-series on the subject that even technology friends of ours in our own circles don't even know what that is. Captology, what's that? Yes, and it's kind of depressing, especially when you read the science research, the papers, all these statistics, and you're like, oh, and no one talks about it. People feel it at the back of their head that this something is wrong. So today... In our episode of Captology, part three, we want to talk about the signs of addiction. So aware, change starts with awareness. If we're aware of what are the warning signs that we're addicted to our phones and technology, they will help us really fix that problem, maybe face that problem. And the other thing we want to talk about is the harms and impact. And all those technologists who created Frankenstein and then abandoned it. We started this three-part series by asking a very direct question. Should social media products come with a warning? Something that says, this product is known to cause eating disorders, depression, and elevated risk of suicide. Let's face it, if we buy a packet of cigarettes, there's going to be a warning label, especially here in this country. Perhaps that's the same abroad as well. And companies had to place those warning labels on the products because there was overwhelming evidence for the harms that couldn't be hidden any longer. And in the case of tobacco, the health impact had to come to the surface first. So that's what part three is about, I think, for me as well, surfacing all these harms, all the impacts, the damages that Captology has given rise to products, products given rise to a new, pandemic. new generation of consumers and a pandemic 
that those consumers are living through. So we're going to discuss the warning signs of tech addiction, what to look for in your children if you're a parent, particularly if you're a parent. This this episode, I think, is for you. We will tell you what you can do about it. So to recap part one and two very quickly of our Captology mini-series, we explained, first off, the science of Captology, how it's given rise to media products that have driven a silent pandemic of deteriorating mental health and meaningful social connections. Now, it was BJ Fogg and his peers who gave birth to Captology, and it had its origins in the early work of classical conditioning by Pavlov, as well as B.F. Skinner's work with mice leading all the way up to Nir Eyal's hooked model. And some of you may have been doing some reading on that. So big tech borrowing the tactics of gambling industry to target the addiction centers in our brains to create that psychological craving, that dopamine hit. We looked at social comparison, social validation. And today in this episode, we will tie all these concepts together. We're going to detail how this is leading to that rise in mood and mental health disorders and addiction among adults and in our young people. So let's get stuck into it. What are the real world impacts of captology on our society and the average person? We could answer this question by dismissing it really quickly with that frequently thrown about quote from Time magazine, which said, you now have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. And we could leave it at that and say, ah, you know, that that's the only impact. Or we could get a bit more serious about it and we can look at the nuanced words of Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, who said, the true scarce commodity is increasingly human attention. Now, that is a very sophisticated statement for the computer age. So academic studies and quotes from CEOs of tech companies are one thing, but what about the average person? What does the real world have to say about the challenges they're facing when it comes to tech? Here's an interview that Manal has done with Debbie. She's a mother and a college professor. I just want to take you back to a movie I was watching 20 years ago. It was called The Corporation. And back then it was an eye-opening film about all the evil things that big corporations do. And one part there spoke about how companies are targeting children behind their parents' back. So how they get children to ask parents to buy them the next toy or nag to go somewhere. And they actually did research and they, they monitored how much children nagged the, the parents and how nagging was helping to get them to sell products. So they were actually targeting children directly. And I remember there was this one woman who said, no parents can stand um, against this multi-billion industry that's targeting our children directly. Now take this 20 years ago, fast forward to today and multiply it by one million trillion because we have tech companies now that are targeting children behind their parents' back. And look, I have a 12-year-old daughter and she's using TikTok and Snapchat with some permission and some limitations, but it's very, very hard for parents to keep saying no for years and years where the children are begging to have access to social media. 
And once they do, you completely lose control. Even if you try to set screen time limitations and try to monitor what your children are doing. I actually said to my daughter the other day, just a few days ago, I said to her, I feel like I've given you cigarettes. As a parent, I should never have given you something that was so addictive. When she was going on TikTok for three, four, five hours a day, and you could think, oh, what a bad parent she is <laughs> listening to me because she should have set limitations. And believe me, we were there. We had limitations. We've taken them back. And it's very, very hard because the child tells you, and she's now a young woman or you know a teenager and she said I don't want you to set so many boundaries I want you to respect my privacy I want you to let me be a you know an independent person and it's very very hard to negotiate but I said to her I feel like I've given you cigarettes no parent should give their child cigarettes no parent should give their child something that's so addictive that I could see you're losing your ability to control. So we went back to one hour limitations on screen time and it's getting better until the next um, problem arises. But she's 12. I'm seeing people who have their children addicted as young as age of two or three, maybe even younger. I see families sitting on a restaurant and the only thing that the children are doing are gluing their eyes to screens. And I just had a friend who, who um, visited overseas and she um, has a sister and her sister's child who is only three. He's so addicted to a specific TV show which is designed to get children to release dopamine every five minutes. And it's specifically designed to get children to be addicted to this TV show. And she, what she described was horrifying. This three-year-old girl cannot do anything without watching this TV show. So they have to feed her like a zombie in front of the TV show. They wash her hair in the bathroom while she's watching this show. She's sitting there like a zombie. And if you try to take away the iPad with this TV show, the child will scream as if you're slaughtering her. It's just so addictive that she, she, she has withdrawal symptoms if they take away the iPad. This is what some companies are now doing to our children. And if 20 years ago, this woman said, no parents can stand against a 12 trillion um, companies, just imagine what it's like now. Today. This was Professor Debbie Khaske-Leventhal, Professor of Management in Macquarie Business School, describing one of the children in her family who has serious technology addiction. And we looked up the name of the app she looks at and caused all this trouble that she explained in her uh, interview. It's called Coco Melon. And it's actually on Netflix. I Coco found it on Melon. Netflix. Yeah. Sounds sweet enough. Yeah, I found it on Netflix. Let's talk about some of the indicators for what what would what type of harms would we expect persuasive technology to produce. Okay, if we want to talk about genetic genetic harms and impact on us as humans, it's good to list them. It's good yes. to give them names. Degradation of mental health. I think we all been through that and we, do, we couldn't put our finger on it. Like why I feel down 
depressed, disconnected after logging in my Twitter or looking at my Instagram feed. Insecure about your self-image. Insecure, yeah. feeling you're missing out. And we talked about those things, the second part of this um, mini-series. Also addiction and the compulsive behavior. If we keep checking our phone every few seconds, every few minutes, without even having notifications there, this is a sign of mental health problem. Our diminished attention, like the multitasking, when, you, when you're checking your feed while you are we're talking to your friends, and we're talking and suddenly they're just like talking to me while they're scrolling through their feed. It's very annoying. I don't know if this happened to you. So they're multitasking in front of you. In front of me. And yeah. I'm just like, wow. No, no, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm just checking this. I'm just answering yeah. this message. The other thing is the avalanche of information. We're overwhelmed with information. That we don't, it's just like, I feel like we're jellyfish. Whatever the waves takes us, we go with it. We're not swimming anymore. We're just going with the flow. We lost that control. We just snowed down under this avalanche of information. And the worst part is you don't have even time to validate. The other harms is really the political hyperpolarization. And I can see this with my friends in the US. How... Social media algorithm really push one side of the story to you based on your history of browsing or whatever things you're watching. And it's just echo chamber where people keep listening to the same point of views, same opinions, and also emphasizing their point of view. So that high polarization being created by such like I just want engagement as much as I can. How can I engage you? I'll show you things that will get you enraged and angry. Also, the widespread of fraud and exploitation on social media and on these platforms, whether identity theft, I have a lot of friends, their accounts, they invested so many years creating them, it's been hacked. Um, human trafficking, Facebook was used for human trafficking. Crazy, yeah. And there are so many stories that you can search about it. What about surveillance? What about the super hyper-targeted uh, sur- uh, advertisement that requires them for surveillance? People also been facing trolling online, harassment, um, I'd say physical threats that violate people's physical safety. I was, I faced so much hate online when I was campaigning for the Women to Drive movement. And I, you, we had a page with 7,000 likes, members, 7,000 members of this page, calling to beat women uh, who wants to drive their cars. We reported Horror, that yeah. hundreds of times and guess what? Nothing happened to it. You reported it and nothing happened. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. The rise of influencer culture. I effing, I would read one, I really curse here. It is a About PG-13 the influencer podcast. culture. That influencer, yeah. What, like, what is the achievement of those people? Um, just because they post things that appeal to this algorithm and makes them have followers and likes. And become famous for what? I don't know what. And also people think, oh, I want to be an influencer. Now people, kids, you ask them, what do you want to be? I want to be an influencer. Like, like what exactly anyone could explain to me. Also, parents really feel they are overwhelmed. They feel, ta- the, the parents feel like, I lost uh, my child to social media, to hate. And the, the problem is society points fingers at the parents, say, oh, you should have more parent control. You should have better parental uh, 
uh, strategies, but it's really that's the gaslighting parents. Parents are going, it's a symmetric relationship with tech companies. We can't blame parents when tech companies, all they want is as much attention of those children. And then we say, oh, parents can have screen time. And we're going to talk about this later in this episode. There's a great summary by Johan Hari mm-hmm. from the book Stolen Focus about all book, of yeah. these all of these indicators of persuasive technology's harms. Uh, journalist Johan Hari, he wrote a book called Stolen Focus. He's actually speaking in Writers' Festival in Sydney this week, next week. He said, and I quote from the book, addictive technology generates consumers who increasingly experience anger, fear, and hate. When fake news travels six times faster on social media than real news does, people prove less equipped to tackle the world's problems. Sure. Social media impedes individuals' and societies' collective attention. So what does this mean for other segments of society? How about our Gen Z girls? Let's, let's focus on them for a bit and the work of Jonathan Haidt. For Jonathan Haidt, the massive sudden deterioration in teen mental health points to social media and the victims overwhelmingly point to Instagram, especially when it comes to our girls. The rates of depression, anxiety, self-injury have surged among adolescent girls in 2010. And this was pointed out by Jonathan Haidt's article in The Atlantic from 2021, and he started looking at pivotal years like 2010. And he went on to call out in particular Instagram, which displaces other forms of interaction that a teen might have and puts the size of their friend group on public display and subjects their physical appearance to a hard set of measures of likes and comment counts. And it takes the worst parts of what you and I remember from middle school and glossy women's magazines and totally intensifies them. So when a teenage girl went from texting their close friend on a flip phone in 2010 to posting very carefully curated photographs and awaiting comments and likes by 2014, the change, according to Jonathan Haidt, rewired everyone's social life. So... 2010 was a very pivotal year. Depression and anxiety, suicide rates and self-harm jumped sharply from the four years between 2010 and 2014, and the rates of self-harm doubled in that time for girls aged between 10 and 14. The research suggests that Instagram continues to loom in the background of a girl's mind long after the app is closed and continues to drive obsessive thoughts and worries and shame. Yeah, anything with comparison. When you compare, you're either very unhappy or you're egoistic. And when you compare, it really creates, you want to create this fantasy that doesn't exist in real life. And you think everyone is happy, having the best time of their lives, but you don't know how carefully created this life. It's a distorted reality that's yeah. being presented. That would create envy and that would create the feeling of missing out and an anxiety. But the interesting one is um, TikTok. I don't use TikTok, but I was lis- I listened to The Daily. It's a New York Times, The Daily podcast. And they had a whole episode about teenagers in the US developing tics. And I'm like, what's a tic? I want to read the name of the syndrome. It's called Tourette syndrome. And it's involuntarily 
movements. And what happened is they found that the common thing about these teenagers, the developed ticks, they watch a video of an influencer trying to raise awareness about tourist syndrome. And what happened with TikTok? You watch one video, they keep showing you the same uh, similar videos, and they keep showing you similar videos. And the brain copies those ticks in real life. So in Sydney, there was rise in 2021 by 41% of women showing up with ticks. I was like, wow. And the doctor here, when he tried to, he couldn't understand why there is a huge rise. And he compared it with numbers coming from the UK, the US and Canada. And the, the common thing between all these cases is they watched Tourette syndrome awareness videos in TikTok. Look at that. That's so, crazy. Yeah. Now it's playing with my, not only my mental health, but also my neurosystem. So it's a form of social contagion that spreads online. Yeah, I like this. Social, social contagion. A bit like if I'm on a bus and I see someone yawn and I yawn as well, that's kind of like the behavior being contagious in a sense. And imagine this is like large scale contagious. Right, because it's not just limited social media, once it gets millions. online. It's not the guy across the, like sitting in front of me in the train station. Broadcast across, the, across the globe if it's on TikTok. Wow. We want to talk about actually technologists who created tech and then they stopped and they said, oh my God, what Frankenstein we just created and released to the world. We'll, we mentioned in the There's last episode, yeah, we mentioned, we, we always mentioned those technologies because it's good to have people from in, insiders. Um, Tristan Harris is one real known one. The former CEO of Facebook who talked, uh, Sean Parker, who talked about God only knows what Facebook is doing to children's brain. Uh, we wanted to, in last episode, we talked about Lauren Pritcher, Pritcher, Pritcher? Lauren Brichter. Brichter. I'm terrible with... with We're not sure how to pronounce that names. last name. Lauren, if you're listening, please contact us. Lauren, <laughs> Let us know how to know. say your last name. <laughs> Lauren, he, the one, he's a technologist who invented the poultry fresh. And he said, I really regret all the time wasted online that I could spend it with my two children. In, in our last episode of Captology, we brought up Justin Rosenstein and his team at Facebook that created the like button. And one of his colleagues, Leah Perlman, also stood together with Justin in uh, sort of being disaffected by their own creation and rejecting it. Uh, going on to say that one reason I think it is particularly important for us to talk about this now is that we may be the last generation that can remember life before. And Rosenstein's obviously talking about the life before all of the social media and social media, smartphone revolution. Justin's point there was that while questioning the attention economy that's rising now, the, the people that are doing that are, are, are in their 30s and they're part of a generation that will remember the world before we had this wireless revolution and a telephone actually had to be plugged into a wall. So Justin's colleague on the like button team, Leah Perman, also went on record as being unhappy with what the like button has done to our society. As a Ruskin, the creator of the infinite scroll, he said that he calculated that his invention wasted Sufficient user time to equate to 200,000 human lifespans every day. Another one of these conscientious objectors is Sean Parker. 
And he said, I don't know if I really understood the consequences of what I was saying. Because of the unintended consequences of a network when it grows to a billion or two billion people, and it literally changes our relationship with society, with each other. It probably interferes with productivity in weird ways. And finally, he went on to finish, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about... How do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? That was their sole aim. I love Sean Parker said that. That was very strong. He's a great insider. But also, guys, if you don't know, one of the most known technologists worldwide is Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs, his kids, he did not allow them to have any of mm. the iPad and iPhone. And technologists from Silicon Valley... They're known to send their kids to schools where they don't allow computers, even laptop. Yes. How amazing the, the contradictions. Now, this is perhaps not a conscientious objector, but I'll call him a sheep in wolf's clothing. And I'll call him that because, Mia, you mentioned earlier that parents are being gaslit into believing that they are the ones accountable and that they can take action to help with their and their perhaps even their children's addictions. Andrew Bods Bosworth he was a Facebook executive. I find him fascinating because he wrote, while Facebook may not be like nicotine, it is like sugar and benefits from moderation. So he sounds like a reasonable kind of guy, doesn't he, on the surface? But what I find interesting is that Jonathan Haidt uh, detailed this, con this comment by Andrew and said that this this kind of framing implies that the health problems are from the user's lack of self-control and concludes that each of us must take responsibility for ourselves. But this thinking points to cheap solutions that do not pose a great threat to Facebook's business model. And conveniently, it means that Facebook can rush in and look like the heroes because now they can offer you a product or something else to help limit your consumption. Wow. Wow. How yes. wonderful Facebook. Thank you very much. We call this Zuck washing. Zuck washing. <laughs> like greenwashing of all the fossil fuel companies telling us they're part of the solution. They're not the problem. Uh, we want to talk about signs of addiction. But before that, we want to know, uh, we want to um, talk about the meaning of addiction. So addiction, the known one, when we say someone is a de addict, that means they're addict to a substance, uh, alcohol, drugs. But that's not actually, it's not limited to drugs and alcohol. Addiction is often characterized by a recurring desire to continue to take a substance despite harmful consequences, whether you take it orally or you use it. When I was thing. a kid, that's what that's what I thought addiction was. It was always about a substance. Like a hero heroin yeah. uh, uh, like a heroin, yeah. Yeah, but it's uh, so when we use technology, that's not a substance, but that's a behavior. That's something that we use. That's something we have. Um, look at it like gambling. Yes, uh, uh, gambling is known to be highly addictive, and that's not a substance that we take. It's it's a behavior. Well, Gabor Mate, I I've come to get to know him recently through a number of his presentations online. And I really appreciate one of the definitions of addiction that he puts forward. This new definition, we can include behavioral addictions. 
such as sex, gambling, and video games. So they are now recognized as part of this behavioral pattern of addiction. So when someone is addicted, the source of their addiction becomes the priority. And other life activities, eating, sleeping, they all take a back seat and are neglected. So those interests that you may have had, like soccer or spending time with other people. It's called football. Like football, right? I'm against yeah. the world's soccer. <laughs> Sorry, you've been in Australia a while now. Sorry to all my <laughs> British friends out there I've, that I've just betrayed. And the Saudis. And, yeah, and the Saudis. <laughs> cool. Uh, those activities now take a back seat. And the addiction takes the front seat and begins to drive our life. That's so sad, like things to preserve your life, like eating and sleeping. So what happens when the addiction's cut off, right? Because we, we've been talking about the withdrawal. this. withdrawal. That withdrawal. We now get these triggers that intensify negative emotion characteristics for us. And that's what Professor Debbie was explaining. A three-year-old would go through a meltdown when they take the iPad from her. She take it away and, and they just go into absolute DEFCON 4 <laughs> nuclear warfare <And> <laughs> with their parents <laughs> over their smartphone. But it, it's also important that we emphasize that we should not accept the blame. And that's what Big Tick, they want us to believe that it's our problem and we have the whole solution, it falls in our hand and we have to take control of our own life. And Nir Eyal is one of the technologists who pushed that idea. He wrote another book called Indistractable. And I watched some of the videos. I didn't read the book, but I watched some of the videos explain his Indistractable and how you, uh, you change a habit of keep ch- checking your phone. And wait a minute, you wrote the book Hooked. And now you're telling me, so you taught the technologist how to create highly addictive t- apps that people can't put down. And now you're going to the users, and I hate the word users, you're going to the tech, the people who use tech technology, and you're telling them, hey, these are techniques for you to stop your addiction. But I'm just like, which side you're taking here? It, to me, that's big tech offering to help me with my social media addiction is like Tony Montana offering to help me with my cocaine habit. It makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> so who's who's Montana? Oh, Scarface. Scarface, yes. Anyone like American movies? Scarface is a good one to watch. Okay. So what it, do we do? What do we? Yeah, what do we do about all this? So, We've painted quite a horrible picture. And it's good because again, change starts with awareness. We can't change something if we're not aware. We can't, we can't give it names. Like if you, once you put a name, once you name that behavior, once you name the problem, it becomes easy to tackle and it becomes easy to face and confront. And when we were writing this episode, when we were researching for this episode, it's staggering the amount of advice given to us to control our impulsive behavior when it comes to checking our phones hundreds of times a day. It's really staggering, shifting the blame on us. While we really need to talk to technologists and we need to talk to regulators, we're going to talk. So it was very difficult to write our. We did. We did struggle with creating this episode's crash course in digital self-defense. So 
we had a very rigorous discussion about this. We discovered there's no crash course, there's no silver bullet, there's no easy fix. The computer age has taken us from zero to one, to quote Peter Thiel, who's the entrepreneur and uh, co-founder. Found, co-founder of PayPal. So he wrote a book, Zero to One, huh? He did, yeah. Wow, okay. So it's a concept. He, he coined a concept saying, how do we think about massive transitions? Or innovation, or right? innovation. So, for example, when the Wright brothers flew the first plane and gave rise to the um, aviation age, wow, that was yeah. an example zero of going from one. zero to one. We were walking or using horses or going by car, crappy cars, to places. Suddenly, we've got a third dimension that we're flying in, that we're moving in, and we're moving at speeds unknown before and we're seeing an entirely new perspective on the world it was a rise from zero to one which are always much harder that's a computer age and they're much bigger they're more significant they're more powerful so what we have now with social media being so ubiquitous in our daily lives just this really great paradigm shift in society what that means is that in terms of capability we have entered new uncharted territory as a species. We've gone from zero to one, and that means going from nothing to something. It's the greatest leap possible, greater than going from one to 10 or from one to 100. To go from zero to one is to conjure something into existence from the dark void of oblivion. So what does it mean for us? It means that much of the current advice is superficial. It won't work. The superficial advice we were seeing not only blamed the users and parents and others, or seemed to seem to imply that we are in control. When I read their advice, it seemed well-meaning, but I thought they they missed a crucial element, which was the authors of that that advice did not realize the extent to which we are targeted by big tech companies and their advice is still from an old school view of the world. We recognize also that Facebook knows the plight of parents. In their own PowerPoint presentation, they had a slide saying parents can't understand and don't know how to help and that today's parents came from a time before smartphones and social media. But social media has fundamentally changed the landscape of adolescence. That is profound. So Facebook are basically rubbing it in and saying, you know what, we know you guys have an uphill battle. I don't think realize just how hyper-targeted, particularly the young people are, for the addictive centers of their brain for the psychological wiring that all these social media companies are aiming for, particularly at the young who have not yet developed that prefrontal cortex, who are not really um, moderating their behavior. So we did find a lot of advice and we've tried to, to coalesce it. We've tried to give it some logical structure. So we've got some advice for the parents, for the children, and uh, we've also got some recommendations and things that people can do. We've even got some extreme examples of what you could do. And we've also got another category advice that we found very nuanced. It was very sophisticated and it spoke more to the addressing the emotional needs of the person, meeting our need for connection. This advice was radically different 
and heartfelt. It was all about compassionate inquiry and how we can maintain our humanity, I think, is what I got out of the advice that, that belongs into this yeah, I love other it. category. I love it. It's really, I, I'd say, unconventional advice or unconventional wisdom yes. uh, going through that and all the work of those uh, psychologists and uh, ch ch children's psychologists. But it's good to know the signs. Have you ever questioned uh, the what are the signs of technology addictions? Those are the warnings you have to look at to identify or know if you're addicted to your phone or your laptop or whatever technology that you use in your life. They're great flags, aren't they, to spot and see, and they're very tangible. It's, it's very important. So, for, for example, if you're wasting so much time, if you log in to just watch one video or read an email and you, then you find yourself in in a what's the word swirl and you can't get out a swirl and you can't get out of it and you spend hours so so much wasted time that you miss important things in your life because you like sometimes I just I'm trying to do my meditation so I just log in in the morning to do my meditation and then I find myself reading messages and replying to them and I'm like what are you doing stop it <laughs> so that's the wasted hours is important for us to recognize when we waste time when me, if I'm logging for one minute and I, I wake up from my slumber an hour later just scrolling, that means this is important for us to recognize. Okay, this so, is a sign of addiction. So marker number one, wasted time. Number two? Number two, I love the name of this, <laughs> ringxiety. Yep, we talked about it. The I just find it amazing that we have to invent an entire new dictionary of words to explain <laughs> what we're going through. Ringxiety. Ringxiety is the phenomenon that your phone's about to ring and you have anxiety that it will or it has. Whether it has or it hasn't doesn't matter. You live in a constant state of anxiety My God, yes. that your phone will ring. You might have to answer it. You might have to respond to someone and you can't do we live in a world now where we can yes. even reject a phone call? I doubt it. Actually, teenagers, which is funny, millennials, they hate phone calls. Oh, Actually, wow. they have call and anxiety. They're okay with text messages, but they're not okay with phone calls. Oh, they don't even that. know how to act and talk like on a phone call. But also the they're phantom, awkward, aren't they, on is, the phone? It is very interesting. I find myself more feeling comfortable sending messages than calling people. I'm getting into a know, habit of that too. When you catch yes, them, if they're busy, if they're... Sure. But also the phantom, if anyone remembers, the phantom uh, vib the notifications. Phantom notifications. When you feel your phone is vibrating, but it's not, like, yeah. did it, like indicating the, that you got a notification, that's anxiety. If you feel yourself craving, like let's say you, you run out of battery, you're in a concert or you're outside for dinner with friends and you're just occupied. Your mind is occupied. All the messages and all the likes and all the comments that you've been missing when your phone is dead. So the craving also when you spend, when you crave, like let's say you're working on something very important, but you're craving to look and check your messages and, and news feed. That is, that is another sign of addiction. So a fourth marker is multitasking. If you find yourself trying to be on a date with your partner while responding to social media or reading email posts while ordering your dinner with the waiter <laughs> and scratching your nose, you're probably multitasking and that's a sign that you're trying to do too much. There's a certain certain 
bandwidth that the human mind is capable of. There's a certain speed that is There's natural no for us. Too. There's no mindfulness in multitasking. It's all just you're doing everything and nothing all at once. That's that's the fourth marker. There is there is one called Monitor Tan that I really love. So by the way, we got this. <laughs> I love it. We got it from uh, Lifehack.org, and the Monitor Tan. I was laughing when I was reading it. That means you spend more time looking at your monitor than outside getting suntan, a real healthy tan or a real healthy sun time. Uh, one of the signs also is the relapse, mm. and the relapse is is also very worrying because relapse that means when, let's say, you lose your job because you can't focus anymore, let's say people who play online gaming, uh, they miss important events uh, if they're of students, their children. Yeah, if they're students, they miss a lot of uh, studying and, and, and working. If they, are, if they have a job, they will do terrible performance. If you have kids, actually, you're missing all those important minutes and times of your ch- children because you're spending your time online. And then you end up with what? Feeling of guilt, feeling of shame, feeling of anxiety, feeling of anger. And then you try and stop. And that's when you relapse. And then you go right back in. But that's, I think that's one of the worst signs of technology addictions. But for children, it's important to yeah. know the signs of children addiction to technology. Yes. So if you're, if you're a parent looking at your child wondering, do they have signs of technology addiction, then these are the things you'll have to look out for. So for children, the signs of problematic use could be things like if their screen time is interfering with their sleep, um, or it could mean that it interferes with real human interaction. You remember when you used to go outside and actually play and knock on the door of neighbors and go, hey, do you want to come out and hang around? Um, so that's offline play. If, you, if, if, if your screen time is interfering with offline play, that's a marker. If they're missing physical activities, such as swimming, or if you were going to go for a run or go to the park or take the dog for a walk or go horse riding or cycling or skateboarding or playing squash or any number of things, if it's interfering with their school and their assignments, or if their screen time is interfering with basic face-to-face interactions like meeting real humans. If there are negative emotions that you see come up after they've completed a four-hour slog on Instagram or some other social media platform, if they come out of the room depressed or anxious or sad, that could be a really good sign of technology addiction. And your children. Also, children also lose interest in social activity. Not always interfere. They don't want to go out anymore because they're so connected to their screen. They don't want to miss the next thing. Uh, when they are deceptive, like this kid I was watching, this kid, her mom, she took her phone from her because she's addicted to t- Twitter. She logs in Twitter from the TV screen. Yes. And she posts from there. He said, hey, mom took my phone, but I'm logged in through the TV. Wow. How I don't know if it's going to show up. How old was this kid? Do I'm you pretty sure say? she's a child, but I was, I was like, wow. So they are deceptive about it. Well, and smart enough to escape the digital Alcatraz and get so <laughs> subversive that they're logging in through the television. I kind of like that story. I, I want to <laughs> give this TV. kid a medal. <laughs> but also if it's a mood booster, when they're down, when they're unhappy and you say, hey, I'm going to give you your, the phone to play with and they become so excited and happy. That's a sign of addiction. Yes, and a sign that they're getting their validation from external sources, which which is a whole other world of 
personal development and growth and topic, but but it, that that's why when we came time to looking at the advice, we realized we had to reach into these deeper realms of emotional resilience and how people are actually wired and structured to be nourished from the communities around them. Because if if you're be if you're getting happy because mum's handed you your smartphone back, that's a sign you're in trouble. Wow. I don't want to be that person. Like to, my happiness is in my phone Yeah, because I lack having um, activities and hobbies and social life and a strong community. But here we go. Here are some um, okay, yeah. digital so, self-defense. So before you do that, um, so, okay, great. Manal, we have our definition of addiction. We've pointed out the markers for technology addiction in adults and children. So what's next? What's next is our digital self-defense. Excellent. <laughs> Let's start from the the most outrageous ones. Oh, these are brilliant. What's the most outrageous one you went through? These are brilliant. Look, get a dumb phone. Yes. That is What's a dumb phone? Explain <laughs> to people. So <laughs> a dumb phone. <laughs> before we had before we had iPhones, some of you might remember those days. <laughs> there were these great big brick things that had battery life of a week or more. And you couldn't look on the internet, you couldn't Instagram, you couldn't take a photo, you could text. Yes, you could Nokia, text and you could make the one calls. with the snake. Yeah, the Dumb one with phones. the snake as a game. Something with no internet connection, I'd look, say. Yeah, something apps. with a no internet connection. And, and the funny thing is the BBC posted an article recently about the rise of dumb phone purchases. I so, moved there. Look, it's brilliant. It could either be for nostalgic reasons or it could be because people are, are desperately trying to distance themselves from the negative impacts that they're feeling. Being 100% connected all the time and also spied on by all these apps on our phones. It's got to be a fatiguing thing for anybody to endure, to have that thing in your pocket following you around all the time. I'd be tired. I yeah, am tired. I'd go this. I'm, yeah. I'm actually considering buying a dump phone. A dump, yeah, wow. Yeah. My mum, my mum had one for a while, and then or I'd nearly definitely go back. <laughs> nearly made me buy one as well. What el- what what else do we have in the extreme category that we learned about? <laughs> so one of the one of the interesting things is what Edward Snowden, the whistleblower from NSA, the American um, uh, National Security Agency, does. In the past, when you buy a laptop, it doesn't come with a mic or a camera. You have to plug it in externally. You have to spend extra cash. To the new laptops come with cameras. Of course, our phones has to have a mic because it's Inbuilt. a phone. Yeah, built-in mic. What he does, he literally opens the case of his phone and disconnect, destroys the mic, the internal mic. And every time he needs to use his phone, he would connect an external mic to talk. I agree with him, actually. It's a brilliant idea. Because you can, once you have a mic, a built-in mic and a camera in your phone or laptop, and I'm a cybersecurity expert, I'll tell you this with 100% confidence. Once you have built-in camera and mic in your phone or your laptop, anyone who can hack those devices can listen to you. So the only way is that um, I have a laptop with no network card. So I know 100% that that laptop, whatever I put there, it will never be leaked online. It will never be hacked because unless someone break in my house physically and take that laptop. And for those of you that are longtime listeners and have heard the previous episodes will know that the more that they listen to us, the more that they learn about us, the more that they advertise to us, and the more attention they steal from us. So Edward Snowden... 
my hat's off to you, sir. That's a great idea. But can, can we go back to the more they advise, advertise to us? It's important to know it's not an individual problem. We think it's one-on-one targeting, but it's not. When you have access to the information of a whole society and you understand their moods, their purchase power, their purchase behavior, their movements, you're really monitoring a whole society and you can create whatever programs to change people's behavior. You can understand those people and you can push your agenda on them. For me, it's a very dystopian, it's very Orwellian world what is happening today. So, yep, you can do what Snowden is doing. Well, what about an, what about the extreme measure of deleting your social media accounts? We've sometimes joked about that on the podcast, haven't we, where we've said, why do we delete them? You're actually someone that I know that actually has gone through a phase of deleting social media accounts, which to me is very radical because you, you're you cutting off the, the library, the file of facts of all your contacts and names and numbers and ways of getting in touch with people and keeping track of events and important things that are happening. So that is an extreme I still, exclusionary measure. I can still have access to these things. It doesn't have to be with my real name. I don't use it. But if I want to have, I can just create, create anonymous name and just go there and watch what people say. But I'm not interested anymore. So Jaron Lehner is known to be the father of virtual reality. And he wrote a book called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. I did the book and I was laughing. He's, he's a very funny uh, technologist, the way. And he has actually a TED Talk on the same subject. And that's an extreme. I did that. I actually deleted all my social media accounts. I recreated, I reopened my LinkedIn account recently just for work reasons. And believe me, what LinkedIn is going through now is just driving me crazy. Everyone is self-selling themselves and you have to write to your post in certain things. Very so I'm self-aggrandizing. Just, I'm just like, oh, I don't want to even be here anymore. I'm just, I'm, I find it funny that he only found 10 reasons, but I'm sure he perhaps he found more, but he didn't have the space to write about all book. of them. I'm really sure he book. found 110 and had to cut back. But uh, look, I know that it's particularly in, in, in my sphere of people as well. I, I do know some people that are trying another extreme measure, which is leave the phone in a different physical space, especially if you're sleeping. Uh, or you're off to I bed. I do that, yeah. I do move that. it out. Keep the bedroom a clean space, digitally clean space. Fill it with natural colors, natural materials. No TV. No TV, no electronics, maybe a bed lamp and a plant. But keep all the, the attention-stealing devices out. And that's, that's an extreme measure, but I no, think it's very No, it's not very, extreme. It's do you think accessible. it's extreme? Like I put my phone on uh, in flight mode. Oh, yes. And I just keep it. I keep it in the living room or in the kitchen charging there. And I never oh, yeah, put it next right. to it's me. It's not really. No. Yeah. And I use my Casio watch. My Your old school Casio old watch. Yes, yeah, assuming Leo watch hasn't eaten it. my alarm and it still wakes me up. <laughs> uh, some people have lockbox with a timer to have oh, a digital. digital lockbox. Mm, a digital detox. Some people go on trips with no, without their phones to have digital detox. I, I know friends who digital did that. Digital torture box. <laughs> That is sad that you need to lock a device it is in a sad. box with a timer that it only unlock after an hour. That is sad that we reach this. But unfortunately, because we're, dealing, we're not dealing with normal devices anymore. The other thing is I turned off all my notifications. I saw my friends, I couldn't have a conversation with them mm. because constantly looking at their Apple Watch and their device. 
And I say, how many, how many notifications you have there? And it's like hundreds. Like everyone is, is demanding your undivided attention. I sat with my friend and I said, the first thing you need to do to just, you're, and it, because her anxiety was so high. I said, just, just turn off your notifications. My notifications is always off. The only ones on are my phone calls and messages, Always SMS, off, and yes. that's it. And you also have a off. period of time, I think, when when sometimes I remember speaking to you, and and you said there's a there's a period of time, I think, that you that you completely leave off the books for anyone getting your attention. Yes, if I remember when that I was period, working, yeah, I have a certain time to read my emails. I don't read my emails all day. Yeah, and if anything urgent, they know, call me. Don't message me. Call me. I know it's an urgent uh, an urgent call. Yeah, I'm not 100% like all day. It's, it's so much energy spent on being connected all day and being on demand. Anyone can reach you all day long. I think that's very um, unrealistic of us humans, especially people who want to have a life. So Apple, Apple now introduced grouping notification and it's under the focused mode where you can group all notification and it delivers to you once a day. So you're not constantly bombarded by notification. I find that example really interesting, the notification center and the, and the limit, limiting of, of notifications. Because to me, it tells the story we were trying to tell earlier of big tech manufacturing the problems and then coming along with the solution. Oh, yeah. Which is very ironical that they would be the, the heroes in the story. Here, we're going to save you from all your notifications with yet another product, yet another digital yeah, product. Yeah, but Apple, uh, Apple didn't really create that problem. It's mostly the social media companies who created that problem. And Apple Good has point. actually been very, very uh, outspoken against privacy violations, against uh, the attention economy. And I'm, I'm actually happy that Apple are, are putting all these... Uh, all these restrictions around... And tools. Yeah, and yeah. tools to help people stay focused. We have a friend that we interviewed. His name is Cameron Bugattis. And Cameron Bugattis, um, he created... He couldn't do work when he was studying. He couldn't study. He couldn't focus. And he didn't know that it was because of social media until he watched The Social Dilemma and read Tristan Harris' work. Then he decided to create an ethical social media called Rocket. His website is fastasrocket.com and here he is speaking to us. Hi, I'm Cameron Bogates and I'm the founder of Fast as a Rocket. Uh, it's, Rocket is a ethical social media designed to get you off your phone and doing what you want to do. And the website is fastasarocket.com. So I started off down this path of building a rocket well, back when I was maybe 14, because that's when I started a small app company that ended up failing. And I guess the reason why it failed was because I was just so distracted. I ended up realizing I, I've always thought of myself and I think most of the people who know me would agree that I'm a very motivated person. I'm always trying to do more things. I never watch TV just because I prefer to put my time into more productive things. But even still, I just didn't get the opportunity to put enough time into that small app company. And it ended up, you know, not going anywhere. And so after that, I kind of just started reading a lot of productivity books, kind of figuring out, yeah, over the next 
you know, six years through my uni, through school, I just started trying to work out how I could be more productive. And there's a lot of strategies out there. There's a lot of self-help books and they're all kind of helpful in a way. They give you some reasonably helpful frameworks, but none of them are really effective enough. And at the end of the day, I still wasn't as productive as I wanted to be. And I could just see the people around me spending way too much time on the things that they didn't actually want to do themselves. There's just kind of being pulled along. And the thing that they were being pulled along on was their phones. Same as me. So I asked my mates, I'd still ask this, how much time do you spend on your phone? And most people will say four, five, six hours more. And then they say straight after, uh, but I don't really want to be spending that much time on it to start building Rocket. And at the time, it was just a simple productivity app, which I thought was essentially designed to help hack your focus back. And it was just a simple productivity app with a lot of behavioral nudges in it. Um, fast forward a couple of years, and I've pivoted a few times, and it's now merged with a social media. And the reason why is because social media is the most powerful psychological tool, I think, ever. And what I'm trying to do is democratize that for the power of the people to help you do what you want to do. As you can tell, I'm building something which is very much persuasive technology. And my views are that persuasive technology can actually be quite beneficial. And the problem is right now, all the persuasive technology is being run by you know, business interests which don't necessarily have um, ethical or good interests. They're quite, yeah, they're quite profit-driven. And that's, like a, that's an economic issue. But nonetheless, I think you can still have persuasive technology and I think it's necessary to have persuasive technology that helps you defend yourself from the bad actors. Because in a world where we're bombarded with distractions, we're essentially having our brains hacked into. And just like we had, you know, Norton, McAfee, those, and yeah, they're, they're, those antiviral or antivirus um, softwares became democratized and they allowed every, anyone to be able to defend off hackers. And I think just like that happened with computers, I think that needs to happen for our minds. None of us really talk about it. I don't think anyone really wants to admit that our brains are being hacked and that we need to do something about it. But it's as simple as using some more persuasive technology for ourselves to help defend ourselves. Shout out to you, Cameron. You are a gentleman's gentleman and uh, we absolutely love your work. Please, to everyone listening, go and check it out. It is a phenomenal change, I think, and a shift in the way that we're going to start to see yeah. maybe social media platforms in the future. Yeah. Perhaps they're going to help rather than hinder us. Mm-hmm. Let's hope so. He calls it the social media that help you focus. Fantastic. What's the other category we, we want to talk about on how we can yeah. face this pandemic? So the other cat- category that we discovered was a more nuanced, a bit more eloquent, but also a deeper category of advice that speaks more to the emotional makeup of you and me and for the parents out there, the emotional makeup of your children and the emotional dynamics in your family. Because if you do find yourself in a situation like this, it's very easy to be caught in an adversarial type conversation, which is very punitive. You're the parent, you're the child. Um, Why were you spending six hours on TikTok? That's not right. Give me your phone. And it instantly leads to anxiety, tantrums, shouting, conflict. So 
the this next category of advice I feel is the more the more nuanced and the more sophisticated and probably they're going to be the more effective in helping parents retain their connection and relationship with their children while still helping them guide them through this what did you call it earlier? It was like an ocean of uh, jellyfish, right? That we're constantly distracted. We are by the, the jellyfish. We are the jellyfish. So it would be great if if we had advice for parents so that they could um, help their children through this. So we recognize that children are going to be more vulnerable. Their prefrontal cortexes have not developed to the extent that an adult has. So their ability around self-control and other things is going to be different. So Look, I want to start this category of advice perhaps by, by quoting someone who I love, uh, Sir Ken Robinson, who has, I think, one of the most highest viewed TED Talks of all time where he says that we live is in the, the most, most... Is the most Is the most. That's TED, fantastic. Yes. I really love it. And he describes that, that children today are living in the most intensely stimulating period in human history. Think about that sentence for a moment. The most intensely stimulating period in human history. It must be exhausting for them, all the distractions. So, look, the first bits of advice uh, is encourage your kids to play in low-risk environments. Let me say that again. Low-risk Play in low risk Does that environments. Mean low risk environment. Well, public performance is risky. If you're if you've got an audience of a thousand or ten thousand or a million people, if you make a mistake or an error, it's very very public and large scale humiliation potentially. At, and it's a loop at stake, and people can and reshare. It's a, and yes, it's, wow. a, it's they can reshare. And they can comment and, and they can obviously see it. So it's, Public humiliation. It, it's, it's a very high stakes game. Now, private conversation, that's more playful. If you make an error, you can apologize. And it's probably a group of two or three, maybe five, six people. Perhaps a classroom sees you make a fool of yourself one day. But it's a low stakes game and it's, a, it's easier to learn and to bounce back from that. So as a parent... This bit of advice could really help your child learn and could help them navigate the much bigger digital world by learning first to play in a smaller and low a smaller risk environment. I like this low risk advice. Really, I like this one. And they get repeated feedback in the low stake environment. That's more. It's more conducive to the social skills, social bonds, physical skills, um, and and you can learn. You can help your child learn to properly judge risk when they're in a low stakes environment. So and plus naturally, the the it strengthens friendships. So that's the first piece of, and I really enjoyed reading that. I thought that was wisdom more than just information. Yeah, I love I love your research when you found the work of uh, is he Professor Gabor Mate? Yes, Gabor Mate. So who's who's Gabor Mate? Gabor Mate is a psychologist. He, he's um, renowned and and becoming more known as he releases more books and and uh, speaks more about in what? conferences, yeah. particularly about trauma, about the um, emotions of people, how to live fulfilling lives, meaningful lives. But also he's fond of discussing something called compassionate inquiry. Mm-hmm. So compassionate inquiry is this tool that we will, that the tool that we could all develop that helps us get to know ourselves better and not be as fulfilled 
and validated by, say, the outside world, but be more accepting and more connected with ourselves, which then leaves us less dependent on addictions and substances. And in, 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 in the case of this podcast of uh, outlets such as social media, yeah, social, validation, social and validation affirmation, and affirmation, what we talked yeah. about. So what's his advice for uh, right, so facing this pandemic? Look, I I think there was a brilliant moment. Uh, I saw Gabor Mate answer a question from a conference he was in, and the question was posed: Look, how how do how do you, Gabor Mate, justify or or reconcile or address this tension that we find now, where addiction is the ultimate business model? That's how the question. That's yep. how the, yep. the, the 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 questioner put it. The ultimate business model for everyone is addiction now for Food. everyone. For tech, pharma, media, religion—it's it's there. It can't be changed, and they have a lot of research now to addict people and target them effectively for addiction. So, how do what is what's the best advice the questioner asked Gabor Mate about to stay inoculated from these forms of addictions? And he he said that look. Um, Phone companies and food companies do a lot of research and they know how to access the addiction parts in the brain, including a child's brain. So they're gearing their profits on on people being addicted. He's very aware of this. It's all true. He recommends that present prevention of this and dealing with that um, is on different levels. If you're a parent, you better make sure that your child doesn't experience that inner emptiness that would make them turn to all that stuff to begin with. So I thought that was that was a really poignant thing for Gabor to say. And as adults, what we can all do personally is to become as aware as possible and ask, is there some emptiness inside of me that compulsively has me returning to YouTube to watch that same video over and over again? Oh, that's that's us talking about having meaningful life. Yes. Having things that you get passionate about, you get excited about. So you don't just um, resort to checking your phone, um, having hobbies, having people you want to talk to in real life, in person, nurturing those meaningful relationships instead of those very, I'd say, superficial way of just posting and everyone on my... Superficial and transient. Yeah, I'm posting and everyone, on, they can read it on my wall and then the algorithm will decide who reads that post, who doesn't read it. People can unfriend me as quickly as they friend me. <laughs> So I think the, creating the disposable, the disposable relation, friend, relationship, disposable the relationship, it's yeah. very sad. And knowing about your best friend's birth date, when Facebook tells you, "Hey, it's your best friend's birth date." If it's your best friend, you'd know their birth date. Look, I think uh, in a nutshell, what Gabor uh, finished by saying is, he wants to encourage people to take on the emptiness and the void, look at the source of what might be there. Uh, in that void, uh, in a conscious fashion, and like we started this, in I the think same our way, guest is awake. Our guest is awake. Hello, Leo. <laughs> Look at him wagging his break. tail. He wants a bathroom break. All right, Leo. We'll be back. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back. We're going to let Leo take a leak. <laughs> take a leak. And we're back, everyone. Leo has had a He's chewing has had something. A great little toilet break. What a great dog. 
There are things that doesn't fit under any category, but I think it's important to mention them that helps us with technology addiction. Things like, we talked about having meaningful relationship, but what about having time in nature, going out without our phones? That's very important. And just connecting with nature, just having that nature healing, I'd say. One of the things that we missed and lost with being 100% all the time connected and having our phones on us the whole time is daydreaming. Daydreaming is when you don't anticipate the next thing coming. You're not, your mind is not busy 100% with all these notification. You just sit down and relax and, and think of nothing or think of stupid thoughts, whatever. It really helps cultivate our creativity. Uh, it helps connecting the dots and coming up with new ideas. It helps with creativity. We lost that by being 100% connected to our phones. The other thing that we want to talk about is what we think technologists can do about it. So we, as people who use technology or parents with kids who are addicted to technology, but for technologists, there is an interesting and important course that I did. It's called the Foundation of Humane Technology. It's available for free on the Center for Humane Technology uh, that was founded by Tristan Harris. Highly, highly recommended. We'll post the link uh, in this episode. How about discussing and talking about taking ethical measures when we build our technology as technologists? I sit with a lot of technologists and basic ethics, no one understands basic ethics. Everyone do it that way, then it must be right. Silicon Valley are doing that way, then it must be the right way to do it. No, actually, those people do it because no one stopped them because they can. And technology is faster than culture. Technology is advancing faster than human culture. So we can't really keep up with the next invention with the Silicon Valley technologists throw at us. It so reminds I, me a bit of Jurassic Park, a scene when they're having dinner and someone asks the scientists uh, what they think of the idea to generate dinosaurs. And one of the scientists responds by saying, I think it was Jeff Goldblum's character who says, they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether or not they should. Interesting. That's an interesting idea. And I think that technologists need to have these discussions amongst them. Technologists need to learn. We learn cyber ethics, which not troll, not stalking, not hacking as a technology user. But what about us as technologists? Why are we not learning? We're teaching ethics in schools. Harvard finally last year introduced having, they had a collaboration with the School of Philosophy or and a Department of Philosophy in Harvard, and they wanted to introduce ethics for technologists. Uh, when you go study computer science, you study ethics because there's a human at the other end of the screen that is being impacted by my technology. So I think that's important. For regulators, I just want to say it's really difficult for regulators to understand what Silicon Valley are creating. And technologists can help regulators understand it. I mean, ethical technologists can help regulators understand it and can help bring the regulation up to speed with the technology. In the past, uh, you can't, you could chip a car without a seatbelt, without airbag, without, you can't chip it, of course, without brake. That was basic safety. Today, regulations uh, make sure that the car you ship to the people who are going to drive it has all these safety measures built in. 
we still ship technology with no safety measures, whether in cyber, whether in privacy, whether in ethics uh, that impacts humans. I think regulators can help us make sure that when technologists create technology, there are certain certain standards, certain uh, controls have to be in place. So they can go and just sh- ship such technology that really affects the human mind um, and, and human psych- mental health um, in this profound way without having, so, there's yeah. no accountability. Safety standards, Safety standards need to be addressed. Yes. Saying this is safe to be used by a teenager, for example. But the other thing also, which is important, is those tech companies, especially the ones that use algorithm and AI to push certain feed and change user behavior, they don't allow any independent researcher to have access to this algorithm. Yes. Regulators have to mandate access to independent researchers. I know they talk about IP and that's BS. If it's independent researcher and there is NDA, non-disclosure agreements written there, they need to have access and see what these algorithms are actually, how it's working. You, we, we're dealing with black box that we don't know how the decision was made to push a certain uh, news feed or a certain uh, post. Or advertisement. Regulators can do better than this. A good story from the US, they were trying to push... Uh, there was a, a, a proposal to the Congress to toughen the 1998 Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. The early versions proposed that the age of children, when legally allowed to give away their data and, and, and sacrifice their privacy, it should be minimum 16 years of age. Thank you. Of course, lobbyists pushed back against that um, age limit and they made it 13. So the internet adulthood today is set at the age of 13. Thanks to lobbyists. Thanks to lobbyists. And think of it. Technologies, technology, big tech are spending more money lobbying than pharma and fossil fuel companies. They're heavyweight combined. hitters. Yeah. The more you lobby, the more things you're trying to hide. So to end our episode, I'd really like to share with you a four-step plan by someone by the name of Dr. Neha Chowdhury, and I hope I'm doing her name justice. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist and chief medical officer at BME Health and faculty at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I really liked her article, which appeared in CNN Health. And her four-step plan starts with acknowledging that there is a massive generational divide. Step one of Neha's plan is help to raise your child's awareness about their emotional life. You can do this by asking questions that help your child connect their technology use with their emotional health. And I really like this strategy. So what you can do is you can ask how social media is serving their life or not and help them give words to the way that they're feeling after, say, a six-hour doom-scrolling session on Instagram. So the aim is to help connect them with the emotion and label what they are feeling in that moment. The more they join the dots themselves, the more likely they are to find a solution themselves. So if they come out of a room after six hours on TikTok and say, Mom, after that I feel terrible and bored and just so disaffected and anxious then you're probably onto something. The third step is to raise their awareness about their emotional health to the point where you can ask them if they're 
open to changing anything about their behavior with social media and maybe even ask them to offer options about what that would be for them. So maybe they might want to boost self-esteem. Maybe they can set that as a goal. And the fourth step then comes into play because you can offer to be a collaborator in the solution and support them in the goal. That way you're on their side. All these things are new territory for children, for parents, for regulators, for the academics. This is uncharted territory and we have most definitely gone from zero to one. Tech for Evil Captology has been an epic journey. Manal, any takeaways for the first three episodes of season two this year? That was amazing. And we are doing the next episode is actually about dating apps. Woo-hoo! So stay tuned for that. And Reinhardt is making his first appearance on Download This Show oh, next week. Shucks. So we're very excited being on ABC. Thank you, everyone, who Thanks listened to us. Out. Please share. If you like what we provide you, please share these, uh, this podcast with your friends and family. And see you next time. You've been listening to Tech for Evil. Evil.